Hey, Scott, you remember that song, Back to Life? Of course. Back to reality. That was a chart topper. That's kind of where we are right now. Back to life, back to reality. Let's get going. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, true and real stories from the fringes of classical music. You and I are uh, fresh off the plane, uh, back from Detroit, your very first Sphinx conference. I'm sure you have a lot of things to... First time in Detroit, too. Oh, wow. And I am all about Detroit. What was it about Detroit you love so well, much? Well, I know that it's different now than, than when, when I lived when, there, When definitely. you were living there. But... There was something about the architecture, this gothic sort of uh, beautiful architecture with these tall, narrow windows, you know, really elaborate entryways. Um, I had my first Coney. Okay. Oh, Come yeah, on. sure did. Yeah. Had it with uh, Josh and Quanis, you know, shout yeah. out to them. Yeah. And, uh, and Sam. And Sam. Yeah, Samuel. Shout out to him as well. Um what what were your uh, we're gonna uh, spend a bit of this opus talking about your sort of uh, takeaways from Sphinx, but what what instantly just comes to mind for you when when you think about your very first Sphinx conference? This is the first time I've been involved in a conference in about um, it's been at least ten years, so there's sensory overload, and that just comes from being tossed into a hotel room full of people that are all there for the same thing and just. You know, I had to spend like uh, a full 24 hours in a sensory deprivation tank when I got sure, back. Sure, sure. And I know you talked about, you know, it seeming like I was a fish in water for a while. Or, mm-hmm. you know, you you described me as a you were being in, in my zone. You were in your element. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's always great to get back there. Um, and I, I do also have to say that it was uh, a nice surprise to find so many people who, when they looked down at my tag and read my name, they were like, oh, okay, I know you. Yeah, Triloquy, I know you yeah. the Triloquy podcast. <laughs> so that was, that was pretty cool. Yeah, it was pretty snowy as well. And every mm-hmm. time I think about uh, snowy Detroit, for some reason, there's a piece of music that comes to mind. You've heard of, uh, you've heard of Samuel Barber, right? Sure. So back in 1956, I believe it was, um, he premiered uh, a very famous piece of music there on a snowy afternoon on my birthday that year, actually, um, March 20. Um, and it's called summer music, and it's interesting for a summery piece of music to have a, a connection with, you know, wintry uh, Detroit. Yeah. But it, it it always comes to mind, and even the opening uh, of that tune has sort of that um, mysterious, dark, wintry feel to it. Me and my colleagues used to call that I still know what you did last summer music because it's <laughs> <laughs> because it sounds sort of, you know, kind of, uh, you know, gray at no, the beginning. But anyway, really, really great piece of music. Um, so uh, we were supposed to have a special guest um, on this opus of Triloquy, Janice Lane Ewert. She's a, a host over at Jazz 88. But as is happening, you know. Uh, across the nation and around the world this time of the year, the flu got her. Not the, you know, not, not this, the coronavirus. Not the coronavirus, but, you know, just the, the flu. So she's um, at home, uh, you know, uh, getting getting better. So uh, we'll definitely feature her um, in an upcoming um, opus of, of Triloquy. Um, but for folks who don't know, Scott, who aren't local to Minnesota, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about Jazz 88 and what that is? That is licensed to Minneapolis Public Schools, and they play uh, a mix of jazz along with uh, the traffic updates. That's mm-hmm. where you go to get your in-depth traffic traffic updates. They have like a, a five-minute little news roundup at the top of the hour, but it is your location station for jazz in yeah, the Twin and, Cities. And also some really great jazz played on that station. And something that I uh, wanted to kind of go 
um, into with uh, Janice was the definition of jazz and what is jazz. Uh, in the uh, in the description of this episode, I've included a link to a, a two minute video um, where where a guy sort of from his perspective uh, defines jazz and mm-hmm. and its history. And um, he actually makes a lot of you know racial implications as far as the history of that that I don't think I was uh, you know very much aware of. Yeah. I mean, have you ever thought about jazz and how you we talk about classical a lot, but have you ever thought about how you define jazz as an art form? As a definition, no. But um, a lot of those things that the guy in that video was talking about, I actually studied in my freshman year of college black studies course because I did sort of a, like a, an evolution of, of black music as mm-hmm. my presentation. And so obviously um, uh, I had to look at the jazz scene uh, for that presentation. And then for about five years, I was also the jazz music director at the station that I came here from. So I was, so, and any jazz CDs that came in, I was listening through, vetting it and deciding what rotation it was going to go in heavy medium or light or whatever it it was i'm sure things are done a little bit differently now but um i defined it on on the bottom of the jazz playlist now this might be problematic we can get the problematic alarm out if we need to (laughs) but uh i put a quote down at the bottom that i heard once jazz america's indigenous art form Mm, i mean i don't think there's anything yeah so maybe the word indigenous is what's Uh, the question yeah i'm thinking of the word but the idea was Jazz is America. Yeah. This is this is one of our uh, original. Maybe that's better. Original. It's an original American art form. Yeah. One one um you know one of several. And I think what's important to point out you know here especially during Black History Month is that so much of American music is rooted in Black music. You mm-hmm. know uh, we talk about the Negro spirituals a lot, but but jazz included. And you know the popularity of of that uh, sound in the early parts of the 20th century uh, really spread across the the world. Um, you know uh, I met Janice um, originally. I had her in. Um, as one of the panelists at a, a pre-conversation with the Minnesota Orchestra. So on their program, they had Gershwin's uh, piano concerto, you know, mm-hmm. infused with plenty of jazz. And the mm-hmm. conversation was, um, is this cultural appropriation? Is George Gershwin a cultural appropriator? And uh, we center a lot of that conversation around, you know, Porgy and Bess. But even in, in his, his straight-up instrumental compositions, you can hear that um, that that jazziness in it. And, you know, it's important to acknowledge that, you know, he didn't create that sound, A, and B, many of the spaces that um, he occupied um, as far as cultivating knowledge about that sound of, of what we now call jazz, the black folks that, you know, helped teach him that were not allowed in some of the spaces, right. most of the spaces that, that he occupied. So that's sort of the conversation that that um, surrounds that. And I think it's really important to acknowledge when you talk about the history of jazz and the relationship between jazz and classical, you know, back again to that YouTube video um, that we referenced, again, the, a, a link in the description. The difference was that certain people um, categorized the space in which that music um, was being performed. And that's how the the separation of classical and jazz began, because at the end of the day, it's an instrumental music. It's a cultural mm-hmm. music that really should be considered as classical as anything else. But again, it's the historical sort of implications of the spaces in which uh, that music was created and performed that segmented it the way uh, it has been. He made a good um, he made a good analogy that I think fits. Like so, if you're composing uh, a jazz piece and you know it's going along like a like a Mozart concerto or symphony might go, and then all of a sudden you take a a turn into a key shift that you weren't anticipating, or or um, some something different happens that is unexpected. Yeah, jazz. Right. If it stays inside the lines and follows all the rules classical Mm -hmm. but if you want to if you want to fast forward a couple decades the exact same thing happened in rock and roll music sure with elvis presley okay because he was uh acceptable to watch swinging his hips whereas the people who were actually making the music originally were not and contrary to popular belief forrest gump did not teach elvis how to dance you have to admit though (laughs) that that was a clever little tie oh yeah it was and shout out to forrest gump great soundtrack to that film as well that i think we brought up before yeah um but um you know when, when you the the difficult thing for me scott is you know when we talk about folks like gershwin 
um, there is some some uh, valor to that music. You know, th- th- there is something to appreciate there, a sound to appreciate. I know um, back at my former station, WUOT, you know, I, I've, I've talked a lot about how each of my shows were sort of themed or wrapped around yep. an idea. Yep. Um, a, a really, a show that I was really proud of was the relationship between classical and jazz and how so many of, of these pieces of music that we think of of on the classical side, you know, can really live equally on the jazz side if you think about it. And a great example that always comes to mind is by a Frenchman named Darius Mio. Maybe you've heard his name before. I have. He was taught by Cesar Franck. Mm-hmm. Hey, that was one of his students. Beyond that, it drops off pretty dramatically, what, I, <laughs> what well, I know. Well, you know, he made the trip over to New York once upon a time and heard jazz and just thought it was the most cre- the most creative and the most um, uh, extraordinary thing he had ever heard. So many of his works that followed have a lot of that jazz influence. Um, and, and the greatest example is one he called La Création du Monde, the creation of the world. It, in, it involves some saxophone, and it just has that really, really uh, cool feel to it. Speaking of cool, that's my favorite era of jazz. Oh, cool! Yeah, the uh, like the what Blue Note was doing in the fifties and sixties. You know, your uh, Miles Davis kind of blue and Coltrane and um, um, Mingus too was a, a big influence of mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like all those bands. That, when, that was that was the era for me. When you mention the when you say the word cool and and within the world of classical music, so now I'm thinking about the little jazzy cool section of Bernstein's um, uh, West Side Story. Symphonic cool, dances from West Side Story. The cool fugue, and that's not always easy to play either. So, of course, it's not just the, you know, fair, complected composers who (laughs) wrote wrote this jazz-infused music. But again, back to the original point, when it came to the spaces in which that music was performed and created, it became segmented. So, you know, on that, you know... uh, you know, hard, quote unquote, hard jazz side of things. You know, the big name is is Duke Ellington. Yeah. And he famously said that there are only two types of music, you know, good and bad. But uh, we, we continue to siphon his music over onto the jazz side when, from my perspective, it's um, it's equally you know, classic, classical. Mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, I sat down some time ago with uh, Angela Davis from NPR News, and we talked about this topic a lot and how so many of his orchestral works are indeed, you know, you know, you you would see them in the concert hall play by orchestra, but they just have that, you know, black jazzy feel, and there are examples of that all all across the board in his catalog. So what do you think it's going to take to change the tides when it comes to jazz versus classical? You know, we can have this conversation um, as it applies to new music. So if you if you take them, I'm, I'm just going to throw a name out there. If you take a tune by uh, Jennifer Higdon, you mm-hmm. know, it can sound 
as um, non-traditional as, you know, um, when set next to Beethoven or Mozart, but it's still, you know, very much classical music, just new classical music. But in the year 2020, we still don't give jazz that that same energy, even though it, it, it has, you know, as long of a tenure in the world of instrumental music as a lot of this other stuff. I have to, I have to wonder what it's going to take because I've, uh, I've thought about this in the past and it, it's one of those instances where it seems like the norms that were laid out back in the day, whatever the 20s, 1920s or 30s, mm-hmm. have been followed and so heavily ingrained and that as far as broadcasting is concerned, in formatting, there, there's very little deviation from these from these norms, you know, mm-hmm. unless somebody, uh, you know, like Mary Lucia on The Current here has her uh, No Apologies track that she plays every day. And that crosses all formats. She's played all kinds of stuff in there. And it seems to me like that's what is happening now. Uh, if something is played that's off the regular format, then it's billed as, here, let's have a little fun. Here's a little, right. here's a little tongue-in-cheek joke. Yeah, yeah, know? yeah. And um, I'm not sure what it would take to say, uh, to, to get jazz to be considered classical as well I'm, I'm not sure and then of course we and and this and this is again this is really what I wanted to uh, jump into with Janice we'll have to return to this conversation with her but I will say um, you know uh, I had I had the honor of curating the uh, Black History Month stream that you can check out at yourclassical.org and a lot of the tunes I included there have that jazzy feel to it because I feel like again as Nina Simone said, that is black classical music. And I can't believe we're just now saying Nina Simone's name. You know, uh, Janice, um, you know, had the, had the opportunity to see her perform live, you know, um, more than once. And, you know, she she coined that phrase black classical music. And, and boy, did she um, really blend those worlds uh, incredibly. I'd rather be lonely than happy with somebody else. You might find the night time the right time to kiss. Night time is my time for just for minutes. Regretting instead of forgetting with somebody else. Do you know that tune, Love Me or Leave Me, by, uh, by Nina Simone? Not as well as some of her other parts of the catalog. Yeah. Um, I, I caught on to her when I was about... 16 or 17 years no no it must have been my early 20s because the a film came out called point of no return gabriel byrne and bridget fonda were the two principals and her she was sort of a a secret agent an assassin and nina was her code name and that soundtrack had like half a dozen nina simone cuts on it and so that was my primary education the first track that i heard was her cover of here comes the sun Mm -hmm. but i have to say that black is the color of my true love's hair is my my favorite track and still i And, you know, one of the reasons I respect and love the legacy of of Nina Simone so much um, is that she unapologetically fused the worlds of activism and music. You know, there, mm. there was there was no separation uh, of it for her. And when you think about the time in which she was very, very active, you know, the the 60s um, and, and the in the early 70s, you know, there was. You know, that's when you had the, um, you know, the the height of the civil rights. You know, yeah. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was um, assassinated uh, in the 60s. You had Red Summer, and she did not um, shy away from that. So, you know, the most famous example of her mixing those two worlds 
um, came in the form of a tune called Mississippi Goddamn. Do you know that song? Yeah. You know, I, I feel like that is a tune that should be at the core of music education. I, I, everywhere I go, especially when I talk to kids, I bring that song up because that is the responsibility um, that Nina Simone saw in herself and that we all have, from, in my opinion, to really address the world in the way we can. She just happened to be a musician and... And, you know, being fed up with the culture of the South, specifically the state of Mississippi, she came up, you know, with this tune that, you know, will forever be, you know, at the core of her, um, of her catalog. And I mean every word of it. Alabama's gotten me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about me. so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest and everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. Yeah, definitely uh, check out the rest of that one, Mississippi Goddamn by Nina Simone. Ooh. Help help me out here. Did she did she do a treatment of strange fruit? Yeah, she did a treatment of Strange Fruit as well. You know, thank you, Scott. You know, again, uh, tying all of this to black history and and black music history. My first, um, the first time I heard Strange Fruit, it was uh, Billie Holiday's um, rendition. You know, she's she's going through that. She's a New Yorker uh, going through the South as a singer on tour and looking out the bus, looking out the window of the bus and seeing black bodies hanging from the trees, you know. And people don't like to talk about it a lot these days, but that... That culture of lynching is still um, going on, and man, I, I hate to I hate to even bring my mind there, but it's important for us to you know think about how not long ago that was, and how music pieces of music um, like those really informs the way we need to think about things as we move on into the future. Southern trees. Barren, strange fruit Blood on the leaves And blood at the roots So as we continue to think about moving um, into the future, Scott, I thought this might be a good opportunity for us to um, transition into our conversation um, about Sphinx. So for folks who don't know, um, Sphinx is an organization that celebrates uh, leaders in the field of classical music who are um, who identify as black or uh, Latinx. And um, it culminates the uh, the conference culminates in a competition uh, for uh, in, in two age groups where um, where kids get to kids and young adults get to perform uh, with the Sphinx Symphony Orchestra mm-hmm. in front of a live um, audience at Orchestra Hall uh, in Detroit. Number one, that's a great hall. Yeah, that is so that is so beautiful. The way they've kept the interior of that hall sort of traditional, the classic mm-hmm. style, but uh, the entryway, the the whole lobby is modern. Yeah, you know, so you've got this real feel of of both sides of Detroit, you know, mm-hmm. the classic and the new. I loved it. Yeah, loved even, it. even the um, the photo for this opus at Triloquy.org is us, you know, having a drink in the lobby of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, before the concert. But anyway, you know, that that's Sphinx as an organization. This was the uh, 23rd annual Sphinx Connect, which is the annual conference. And um, I've been going for the past decade or so. This, is, this was uh, your first time. So I thought it'd be a good idea for us to just go through the schedule that we um, all right let's do that 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 we uh, made for ourselves and and kind of give a recap sure all right so before you um, got all settled in um, I actually had the pleasure of um, participating um, in a pre-session um, hosted by a violinist named Janina. She's a member of the Publi uh, Quartet, Grammy-nominated this year, so uh, nice. congratulations to them. And the name of the panel was Advocating for the Now, so basically just a, um, a panel about new music and its role um, in our society. Jesse Montgomery was on that panel, who you got to meet yeah. um, at this conference in a, in a very um, casual setting, I'll say. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And um, and my big my biggest takeaway um, from that panel was the idea, again, of defining classical music. That That's where the whole conversation kind of boiled down to. So mm-hmm. conversations we have in that regard um, are, are, are conversations that are happening out um, in the real world. And in this case, it was specifically uh, the case for new music. So... Um, that was a really that was, that was a really great thing. Um, why do you remember why I told her that just a couple days, Jesse? Be, yeah, with Jesse, just a couple days before uh, arriving in Detroit, I played her coincidental dances, and, and she, she said, said it was problematic. Yeah, she said that's a problematic piece. I mean, for her, you know, in the same way that I say stop picking on me, <laughs> yeah, you know, we, we all make jokes, and I think that's more where she was. You know? Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I don't know her well enough to know when she's uh, being serious, being funny, throwing shade. I have no idea. So, but, but I... coincidental dances is a really great piece of music, as you can hear. Shout out to Jesse Montgomery. We we need to um we need to figure out a way to get her in on Trilla Queen. Okay. Um, but um, you know, so you came in with all of our recording gear and and we and we got some really great interviews that uh, you will be hearing um in the in the coming weeks. But um the first um you know the the first big event that uh, we attended was uh, the opening plenary, um where we got to you know hear from um Aaron Dworkin. Uh, the the founder of Sphinx and then his wife Afa um, runs it now, and uh, the very uh, special guest speaker was Michael Abels, who you know is a film composer, a black yeah. film composer. Um, he's been making uh, his rounds as um, as a horror film composer these days. Did you see Us or Get Out? I have to tell you something. Uh, You're not a horror movie person. I think uh, over the years I've become resensitized mm. to violence and things like that. And I don't seek out scary movies anymore. I will make this pledge to you. I, By the end of the month, I will have watched both of those. Okay. I make that pledge to you. If you need company, if you need your hand held, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> but right. um, so, so, yeah, so big shout out to Michael Abels. We play a bit of his music. Um, on the radio as well. I've seen some come across, yeah. The, the piece of music of his that um, that I air most regularly is called Winged Creatures. It was uh, premiered by um, clarinetist um, uh, Anthony McGill, his brother Damari McGill playing flute with the Chicago uh, Sinfonietta. Mm-hmm. So black music performed by a, a predominantly black orchestra with black soloists. Um, yeah, and, and, it's, and it's a really cool tune to hear. I hope to air it again soon. And then, of course, you know, as uh, as happens at all conferences, you know, the real business um, happens down at the bar. So there was uh, plenty of that as well for the for the rest of that day. All right. So uh, the following. So that was Thursday evening. So Friday morning, um, the first um, session we went to is called Picture Perfect. And in co- and and uh, and that surrounded the conversation of how organizations brand themselves in a digital way or or on um, pamphlets or anything to make themselves look more diverse than they actually are. What, what, what do you remember from that conversation? That was an important panel, I thought, because I know, I know that there are a lot of organizations out there with a web presence that might use Getty Images. Right or, yeah. or, 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 or any Google image search right, you or, know, and just use the black photo that you see. Well, you know, some people actually pay for sure uh, do it the know, right way or the wrong way, Shutterstock or or whatever. That 
Sure, the picture goes along with the fact that you're posting something about Black History Month or a black person who has recently passed or uh, uh, something like this, but it, I, I didn't think of it this way. So this was important. It gives the idea that your organization has more people of color than might actually be the case. Right. So let's just get specific. Let's let's stop bullshitting. So at American Public Media, um, your classical, there aren't a lot of black people on staff. You know, it's, it's, it's really just me and, and Megan. Um, what do you think the optics would be if we put out a, a photo for some project that showed a room full of colorful black and brown people, you know, do, do, you, do you think after attending um, that uh, that conference panel, that would be an appropriate move for us as an organization? This is an important distinction, though, because I'm a media professional of 30 years. I, I with that hat on, I would look at it and think this is uh, the right photo to go with this story. After that presentation, that's when it became clear that you might as well be... It's misrepresentation is what it comes down to. And it gives... You you need to think about the impression that it is going to leave on the person who is looking at your website, social media, or, um, or your video, whatever the case may be. And I, I, I don't know what the answer is apart from... Now, I know that people indicate Getty images, you know, as a credit underneath, but I don't know that the average person out there understands that that does not mean you've got a whole bunch of people of color in your organization. And that's the that's the big issue with this conversation is that we always want to boil it down to intent. Mm-hmm. But I don't care about the intent. You know, I, I care about the, the end product. And, and, and I really love conversations like those. The, the name of that conference <laughs> was Picture Perfect because it gives folks uh, an opportunity to, in an honest way, you know, say and explore the implications behind something of that. I want to um, shout out uh, Devin Hinzo, who was on that uh, panel. He's a, a new edition of the ensemble Apollo's Fire that mm, we air mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. They, and they explore early music, but um, really put a different spin on it. So shout out to he's an oboist. So shout out to him and uh, the work he does with that organization. So the next panel, Scott, that um, you attended was one that I facilitated, mm-hmm. your guide to evergreen programming. So um, the big um, tie uh, or, or the big point of that panel was exploring ways in which programming can impact a community um, one way or another. And I, and I offered um, some data um, by a statistician and a musicologist named Rob Deemer, who you'll be hearing from in a future opus of Triloquy. That was a good interview. Yeah, and as uh, and as Sam Bergman, um, you know, stated in a in a previous opus of Triloquy, um, orchestras, by and large, based on the data, are performing music by Beethoven more than they're performing music by all women. You know, j- just as an example, I also offered the example. Um, of the work I did down at WUOTFM, you know, where in my programming, I centered um, music by people of color and women. That was my core sound. Mm-hmm. That was most of what I played. And in a year's time, my daily listenership, uh, based on the Nielsen data, increased um, by about a thousand. I mean, more and more, it almost tripled um, my listenership. What do you think um, are the risks connected with something like that? Because that's what a lot of questions following um, the, the panel were centered around the risk in, um, in, you know, forsaking that really traditional core sound when you think about uh, classical music radio. Well, one of the things that we talked about with Rob Deemer is, uh, you know, the frequency of Beethoven. And I tried to draw the correlation to radio programming with it because um, a symphony orchestra has a season that does not run the whole year. Yeah. 
and that on each concert they might have three or four pieces. And with the frequency, almost 50% dedicated to Beethoven, that would be like hearing Elvis Presley every half hour. Right, right. And that, and, and, and I think you need to look at it in that lens to really get the idea of how much it dominates. Right. Um, I, uh, I got up and asked a question. Yeah, I forgot that. what you asked. What did you ask? Oh, how, how can potential allies be... Well, what, the first question was sort of uh, answered by Slido, uh, somebody in the Slido queue. But to, and for folks who don't know, Slido is... Slido is a way for people who are in a panel to pose a question to the panelists, and they don't have to stand up and, right. and actually announce it. But you were brave and actually went up to the mic. Well, I, I figure if you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly. Okay. And, uh, you know, so if I'm going to make a scene, I might as well be seen. So you were asking. Uh, my primary question is was uh, how uh, a lot of organizations uh, and and radio stations and and symphonies and such that deal with this music have charts and graphs and focus groups. And I'm wondering if selection bias comes in to play, uh, where you ask the question of someone that you you might kind of know where they're going to land. And I wanted to know what it's going to take to do a focus group in the room that we were in right there. Let's talk to these people who have no reason to go and give public radio a try. Not one reason at all. Um, with all the streaming services, with YouTube, Katie and Delaney, you know, Delaney talked about why am I going to go to the symphony and hear Beethoven 7? Katie I, and Delaney from the Classically Black podcast. Yeah. She said, why am I going to go and listen to that when I can put it on YouTube and sit on my couch? Yeah. You know, yeah. I agree. I agree. We need to, there needs to be a reason to spend that money to dress up or get yourself together however you do and go and hear it. There needs to be a reason. But the second question, uh, I think, which was more important was uh, how can a possible ally like myself uh, do more to affect change in this? To uh, because I'm not in a position of power, but I am a. I, I guess I can step out and say I am a senior member of the of the classical host staff here. Um, not, so not for another fifteen or so years. That that I'm not a senior member. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we're talking. About, yeah. All right. You're right. <laughs> I just had to do the math. But uh, meaning, uh, I've been around for a little bit, so I uh, I I want to know how I can use my knowledge of the current state of things and the way things move within this organization to help. Um, uh, change the uh, amount of music by pre people of color and those that identify in the LGBTQ communities to get them more light. Sure. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's not about canceling Beethoven because his music That's, is, is yeah. really important, but it's just about further integrating because, again, that if, if data shows that Beethoven is performed more than all women composers, yeah. we just need to cut out half of the Beethoven programming. I mean, it's, it's not to the detriment. It's not, you know, we're not canceling Beethoven. We're just saying, Drop one or two. Um, and because at the end of the day, there's um, there's nothing more iconic in classical music than the opening of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. And I could not tell you the last time I saw that on a on a symphony's program. Oh, really? I performed it down in Knoxville not too long ago. It is it is great to hear it live. That that is a, a really cool experience. Yeah. Um. So I was very popular at Sphinx. You know, I had to quickly run from that panel to go be a part of another one. Yeah. The I, li the a live taping of the live accordingly podcast. If but, we go to another one of those, I, we have to build another ten to fifteen minutes on every appointment that you have, so we can simply get through the lobby. Sure, sure. <laughs> so uh, that podcast is hosted by a guy named uh, Joshua Jenkins. 
Jones and uh, co-hosted by Kwanis Floyd, who's actually been a, a guest on Triloquy. Yeah. What were your takeaways from watching that live podcast? How do you think that stacks up next to ours? Um, <laughs> I, I think we are tame. Yeah. About, uh, uh, tame. Uh, compared to them, we are very tame. Um, Kwanis does not pull a single punch. And Joshua was a great sort of cleanup man. You know, he came through and picked up all the other bits that, you know, mm-hmm. while she was busy hammering away at one issue and he would come through and go, oh, yeah, and by the way, this is all going on, too. Yeah. One of the most m- more interesting questions that uh, the hosts asked me as a guest on that podcast was if all of the systemic problems in classical music, um, if, if those problems were a person that you could stand in front of and talk to, hmm. what would you say to that person? And I, and I want to ask you that question. What would you say to that person? What, what makes you think that way? <laughs> hmm. um, so if, uh, because I, you know, I've talked before about how when I was hosting music through the night and getting a lot of the feedback that you are now getting now, whenever I aired something that was uh, a little challenging or... Uh, unexpected from what the listener had in their mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was one guy in particular who would throw shade through email. He'd write in and go, well, now I know why I like the Brahms. Sure. Or now I know why I listen to everything that's in the canon because it's just superior. He used that word. It's just superior. It's, he just thought it's just plainly better. And uh, to be honest with you, Garrett, I don't know exactly what I would say to that person um i'm not i'm not i'm not sure well if you would uh like to know what my response to that question is you'll have to check out the article accordingly podcast <laughs> look that up wherever you check out podcasts huge shout out to josh and Quanice for um having me a guest there so um following that you know dinner and, and blah 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 and the, and, the, and the next big event was um the sphinx tank so um I, so a little background, I hosted the Sphinx Tank at uh, Sphinx last year, and that's when I met um, Cameron Williams, who um, has been featured on an opus of Triloquy and and uh, a book that uh, she co-wrote with her siblings called Kinderloot uh, was actually used by American Public Media as the back-to-school um, edition of uh, Classical Kids Storytime, uh, a book about, you know, instrument maintenance for new um, kid uh, for kids new to classical music and um yeah, really, really incredible um, uh, author, musician, uh, Cameron Williams. Uh, be sure to uh, go find her Kinderloot. But um, but anyway, I had the uh, pleasure of interviewing her during the sort of intermission during Sphinx Tank. So, uh, Scott, what I want to know from you um, is what was uh, your perception of um, Sphinx Tank attending that portion of the conference for the first time? So, first of all, Sphinx Tank is a lot like Shark Tank, right? Mm-hmm. So you're you're pitching ideas to a group of investors and, and one wins. So what, was your, what are your takeaways from the Sphinx Tank 2020? I had a hard time picking who I thought would get the nod, you know, mm. because the first woman that came out, uh, Portia Dunkley, mm-hmm. she had a means of uh, getting kids started in making music. And I love the way that she treated the audience there as uh, she would a group of kids. And she had us making music within 90 seconds. So I love that quick start sort of thing. And it was easy. And um, uh, I I did think that some of the panelists were a little bit hard on her, you know, because they said that there's other things that uh, teach in in this manner. But when there's $25,000 on the line, you know, they have to ask the tough questions. I, I, I get that part of it. But I really think that the, the her focus of um, being out in the community the, these are communities that are uh, disadvantaged financially um, and 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 homeschool uh, groups that you know mu- uh, little music groups that get together uh, for homeschooled children I, I I think that's all really important and so right from her presentation I'm thinking well who's going to top that mm-hmm and then I forget their names, but two twin uh, uh, twin women that were working to get students in, in the uh, Boston, Boston area, area. Yeah. music uh, instruments that would get their playing to the next level. Yeah, and yeah. and I thought, well, how important is that? That's that's majorly important. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then we had, um, uh, there was a young man who pitched the idea of uh, sort of funding a music collective among people who just want to uh, be nourished in, in their uh, performing uh, lives by each other. So, you know, sort of a, uh, what what's the word that you've used before? Like a salon of musicians to kind of come together and sure. bridge ideas. And then the winner of Sphinx Tank uh, was a young woman who had a global idea, going to different communities and cultivating um, people cultivating leaders in those communities and teaching them um, techniques on music leadership for them to bring back in, you know, among uh, among among their people um, so that it's not about superimposing yourself in these communities. I think they went down to Haiti, right. you know, had um, had folks over in Serbia. So not about dropping in and sort of pushing on, you know, our traditions onto them, but teaching them how um, great techniques on how to be a leader in those communities. So um, so you can uh, you can learn more about them um, in a link, uh, again, that's in the description of this episode. She said that everyone involved uh, with that uh, the, the management and the organization of that group is female. And I, I think the largest percent, a slightly larger percentage of them uh, identify uh, as queer or sure. um, non-cisgendered. I'm, I hope I'm using all the correct vocabulary. If not, I take the heat for that. But you get the point that um, uh, the, the, I, I think that that was a, an important part of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, shout out to all of the Sphinx Tank 2020 participants. Each participant actually got um, $2,000 to, to fund their— And that's not chump change. Yeah, their seed money. So I, I'm definitely going to be in contact um, with a couple of them, just as I was in contact with Cameron, you know, the year before, which, yeah. you know, um, gave birth to the Kinderloot edition of— um, classical kids story time, the um, an opus of triloquy where we talked about books related to classical music. So again, just outlining the importance of uh, connecting and and networking um, mm-hmm. within that space. So um, and that was actually the 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 end of that day. So we woke up bright and early on Saturday morning. Hang on, we got one more thing to cover. Oh, what's on that? Friday because when we were watching Sphinx Tank, Lacolian Washington, shout out to him, came and sat down next to me. And I asked him, what was Garrett like as a student? Hi, this is a Colian. Uh, oh, I have so many stories. And is this mic hot? Is this mic as hot, isn't it? Oh, it's a hot mic. Well, there was this one. No, I shouldn't. I shouldn't. Okay, there was this one time he came. No, I shouldn't. I totally shouldn't. <laughs> no, I'm not going to. I'll tell you offline. Okay, well. <laughs> we'll have Lacolin on. We'll have him clear that up later on. Uh, <laughs> but shout out to him. Shout out yeah. to him. No, yeah. he was a lot of fun to meet him and put a face with the name. And I just leaned over during one of the breaks. I just leaned over and I said, hey, you want to help me punk Garrett? And he said, yup. <laughs> <laughs> he did that on countless lessons as well. Anyway, so the next morning, this is Saturday morning at this point, we'll wake up bright and early, Scott, to do what? Attend a live taping of the Classically Black podcast. And I have to say, they did great for trying to get up and, and be on point at 9 a.m. like mm-hmm. that. Shout out to both Katie and Delaney. Yep. And I have to say it was also great to be able to meet them in person, too. That oh, was... yeah, yeah, right, because you had never met them in person. What, yeah. were, what were some of your uh, major takeaways from their live taping? Something that Katie and Delaney have going for them is the fact that they produce this podcast completely independently. They don't have uh, management or financiers or anything to answer to. And they are Katie and Delaney on the mic. They are Katie and Delaney off the mic. Um, They don't code switch. If they do, I didn't see it. Um, And they're hilarious uh, when they were talking about, oh, you're a black woman who plays uh, the double bass and you don't play jazz. How How on earth can you do that? And what did Delaney say? I get up. I don't play jazz. Repeat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they're, and they're very forward about, you know, the strength of the Classically Black podcast is that they um, present themselves as professionals in classical music who are to their core black, all the way down to the way they speak and some of the other bits of music they um, uh, that, that they enjoy. And a name that I know Katie says all the time is DaBaby. Mm-hmm. I, I know that you aren't as familiar with his music as I am, but... Um, Not at all. But... 
um, but Katie said that the baby loves the flute, and <laughs> and that's apparent in in some of his music. Yeah, so shout out to Katie and Delaney and to Baby. <laughs> you know, the something very important happened in that podcast I want to talk about, which is they were talking, this is the point where they were saying, why would I go to a symphony that has all of these things that I can find online and listen to at home? You need to give me a better reason to go and spend the money and the time. And they kept talking about DaBaby and what other uh, artists that they listened to that they would go. And there was a woman from the San Francisco, was it San Francisco Symphony? I believe Symphony? so, yeah. Uh, if it's not the San Francisco Symphony, it was some other um, uh, music organization from San Francisco. And she said, I want to talk to you about programming because I think you have some really interesting ideas. So I'm wondering if the San Francisco Symphony is going to have some sort of a team up. Uh, a concert coming, you know, where maybe they bring in a rapper, a hip hop artist to actually perform live. Uh, we'll see. Uh, I, I, I say we'll see. So shout okay. out to Katie and Delaney. So I think the final um, panel that we attended together, Scott, was one uh, called Conducting Change, a Guide to Relevant Programming. Uh, this uh, panel was facilitated uh, by my homie Titus Underwood, principal mm-hmm. oboist of the Nashville Symphony, who will be featured in a future opus of Triloquy. And he was joined by um, uh, several uh, conductors uh, of color, Eugene Rogers, who folks in the Twin Cities uh, will know, and and um, and in other parts of the country, uh, Roderick Cox, who was uh, he lives in Berlin now, but uh, was a former associate or guest conductor with the uh, Minnesota Orchestra. Mm-hmm. Uh, the music director of the uh, music director from Columbia was there, and the music director of the Phoenix Symphony Orchestra was there. His name was Tito, and he actually offered for me what was one of the more memorable parts of that uh, conversation. So. Um, you know, basically they were talking about ways in which it is a conductor's responsibility to expose listeners to more diverse music. And he had the idea of programming a work by uh, composer Joel Thompson, a work we've talked about before on Triloquy called yes. The Seven Last Words of the Unarmed. Um, and, and if you don't know, it's just a, a piece of music that highlights seven victims of police brutality and their final words are, are, are set to music, uh, a piece for orchestra and, and male chorus. Um, he talked about how he wanted the Phoenix Symphony to perform that piece of music, but but the board of directors, they weren't comfortable putting that on a program, so they didn't. Um, so when it came time for question and, an- uh, question and answer time, I felt like I needed to go up to the mic and address that again. I asked him, how is someone like me or how are people to expect that um, that decision made by the Phoenix Symphony um, is isolated and not just a foundational part of the culture there, not being comfortable really showcasing a true and real, if you will, perspective on classical music, you know, through um, through programming. You know, why why should I advocate for the Phoenix Symphony if that's if that's the energy that they're getting out there? And their maestro Tito, you know, basically just said in front of the group that he doesn't have um, an answer for me. Mm-hmm. What, what were you thinking um, in that moment? My thoughts didn't land until after when people were coming up to you and going, dang, both barrels, you really get, you know, you're really stepping out and all that. Um, Whereas maybe I misread the room, but I didn't think that that was a two barrel question. Did you? I, well, I knew it would be taken that way. For me, it's not a two barrel question, but I also understand that being direct in that way is, is not really tantamount to classical music all the time. Understood. But. In a panel like that, how could they not expect some sort of question like that to come through? And that is why, you know, the Sphinx Conference is so important because, again, it's it's breaking down some of these conversations and, and just putting them, you know, flat out in the open for us to honestly and actively engage. So I hope that the Phoenix Symphony does some work. Um, you know, as far as really increasing uh, the the diversity of their programming, mm-hmm. you know, as he said, 
I don't have a reason to support that organization. That's not me saying that. That was his response to my question. So I hope that that, um, that changes uh, in the future because, again, pieces like the seven last words of the unarmed are among the most important of pieces of music out there today. So of course, Scott, we had the um, closing plenary, but um, uh, which was uh, which featured um, two performances by the Exigents Ensemble. What a piece they brought! To... If, you, if you aren't familiar with that ensemble, I'll, I've put a link um, in in the description for you to check out. Um, um, and and they were led by Eugene uh, Rogers. Uh, yeah. Two pieces of music there. Uh, but uh, before we uh, before we uh, wrap up this opus, Scott, I wanted to uh, kind of get into the um, Sphinx. Um, competition. So first you have the junior uh, division finals. Uh, huge congratulations to Esma Arias Kim, who uh, in the junior division, who performed a Mozart um, violin concerto. Um, the other uh, piece of music um, in that finals concert um, was a cello concerto by um, Luigi Baccarini. Mm-hmm. And Scott, we love making fun of how much we don't care for Baccarini. But for me, hearing it live in concert just felt a little different, as, as well was, as the Mozart. It was a big difference, and I thought it was funny how they placed one, two, and three. We were wrong on our, our rankings were the same. And completely wrong on yeah. on every instance, which I, tends to happen. Actually, I was given the cellist the nod for for the for the first seat, Brandon Leonard, because I I don't know I I don't know if it was um, the fact that I was surprised to hear Baccarini played live. Sure, <laughs> um, and and you mentioned. Uh, the fact that there was just a, a one little instance where you couldn't quite hear him, and that's a problem with cello concertos being able to hear him over the orchestra, and that he would be, and that's uh, why that's why I knew, unfortunately, he probably wasn't going to win, right? Because, because he would be rated on that, right? Projection is a part of music. I mean, even yeah. on the radio, if we air a cello concerto and you can't really hear the cellist, is that a good recording? You know, but 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 the performance again was was really world class, and um and shout out to the uh, third finalist of the uh, of the junior division, that was, uh, Sophia Ayer. Yeah, who also uh, played a Mozart violin concerto. So shout out and congratulations to all of them. Um, so then we have the senior division, which, you know, um, was very well attended and the audience was uh, very excited. Uh, talk to me a little bit about your uh, takeaways from the senior division competition. I have not heard Beethoven's Egmont Overture performed live, and it sort of it made me think about the piece differently sure i i could feel it coming up through my feet you know it was just it was so much more exciting there was so much more fidelity mm-hmm. in the hall but you brought up a really interesting point about the finals concert being led with beethoven whereas the junior finals concert was started by a piece by piazzola yeah the mysterious fugue which we actually air here on the uh, on the air here It's just a conversation of, um, you know, taking the opportunity to share diverse music with audiences. But as you've said, the Beethoven didn't disappoint. Not at all. Yeah. So um, and uh, the finalists for uh, the senior division, you know, there was actually a bass finalist, which you don't see um, um, every year at all. You know, and and I know that you enjoyed uh, that performer and the piece of music he brought. Aaron Olguin, I, I think I'm saying his last name correctly. Aaron Olguin, um, again, remember that name too. Uh, he really threw himself into that piece, and it made me want to know what are the movements like around it. Yeah, I don't know? even think we have a recording of that piece yet. It's it's a brand new piece. It was written in 2012, I believe. Mm. Uh, the la- the composer's last name is Martins or Martin. 
Born in 1981, so a young composer. Um, yeah, be, be, just be listening for that name, too. Yeah. Um, also on the um, competition um, was a violist who brought in uh, the bar, a movement, uh, two movements from the Bartok Concerto for viola. And that was an interesting choice. Uh, and actually, I, I talked with a couple people about it. Uh, again, I wanted to go and listen to that piece after hearing the performance there. Yeah. And, and shout out to that violist. Uh, the, yes, the uh, violist was Jordan Bach. And... Uh, the commentary that I was hearing, they, they thought it was an unusual choice because while it's difficult and it really does show off your skill, not many people know it. And so uh, that might have played against him in some way. I'm not sure. Right, right. But, but really, the uh, yeah, the Bartok Viola Concerto, go and listen to that. Yeah. And um, and the winner of the senior division, you know, a fifty thousand dollars brought in a piece of music that you know very well, actually. Yeah, the Elgar Concerto, and I and initially I thought it was interesting that they went with the third movement for them to play, but really, you know, the part that everybody knows, the uh, the opening outcry from the cello in the first movement does loop back around, so you do get uh, the satisfaction, you know, not satisfaction, but you get that, like, oh, okay, there's that theme. Yeah. So a huge congratulations to uh huge congratulations to gabriel martins yeah yeah so um and that's that's sphinx 2020 so uh you want to go back next year i'd love to i'd yeah. love to yes i would <laughs> that's a short answer um so uh uh the person um that we're profiling um on the next opus of triloquy uh is someone you actually connected with at sphinx somehow i didn't get to connect with damien but you did oh damien strange yeah. yeah yeah he walked up to me at the airport and and I, I was surprised because I didn't see him at all at the conference, but he said that he saw that panel about evergreen programming and mm-hmm. all that. Um, uh, we, we were able to get sort of our own little recap there in the airport waiting to get back home. So, yeah, uh, yeah be listening for Damien Strange on the next opus. Yeah, he and I talk about um, his um, his connection with the black music scene in Washington D.C., his move to Minnesota, and um, and how all of that uh, comes together when it comes to music community activism and really knowing um, who he is as a musician and and a performer. Um, that opus uh, will actually conclude with an excerpt from an opera he wrote. The name of that opera is uh, Mother King, so you'll get to hear an excerpt from that on the next opus of Triloquy and he from Damien uh, before um, we go again a, a uh, rest well and get well soon to Janice um, we'll be having her in um, on a future opus of Triloquy um, so keep your ears out on that as well 